0: Hello and welcome to the Round 6 edition of The People's Game. It's pissing with rain in Melbourne and we should be nurdling a thermos on the wing at the MCG, but instead we're continuing our season of dives into footy's deep, dark past. This week we've got a very special episode. We are joined by author, speaker and former Hawthorne player Tony Wilson, who has written the definitive account of the 1989 Grand Final, which is out now. So for our rewatchables this week, we're going to dip into Tony's memories of the Round 6 prelude clash between Geelong and Hawthorne in 1989. And for Book Club, well, you guessed it, we're going to talk about the book and about the grand final with Tony. We're a
1: happy team at home.
0: He jumps on. We're going to briefly talk about our feelings as modern footy fans about the Hawthorne Football Club. So, Gordo, when I mention Hawthorne, what emotions does that surface in you?
2: I think the overwhelming one is awe. Is I have awe and there's an aura about the Hawthorne Football Club that I know in my lifetime because they just never sucked. They were very good. They were awesome. But above all that, they were like the one club that I thought that if you barracked for them, you could basically go to the football any day for the last 25 years and be like, we could win today. We'll probably win today. We should win today. That was my general vibe towards them. Whereas I don't think any other club, every other club had their peaks and their troughs and it's like, oh, no. And like as Richmond fans, we've been to many, many years being like, we're going to lose that's all right, we're not here to win, we're just here to watch my favourite player. But for a Hawthorne fan, it must have been just like, it must have been stressful knowing that if you lost, you were going to get reamed by your mates. And then just that like, we, we talked about this last year, like the whole 20, 2018 was such a disappointing year because you went in that expecting to win the flag for some silly reason thinking it's easy and we'll go back to back and then every time that we lost you'd be disappointed and saddened. And every time you won you'd just be relieved
0: mm. it's a different set of fan emotions so the interesting mm. thing with the Hawks is I think they've always had eminent players in the game so they've always had superstars and then when they did suck in my lifetime kind of the early 2000s the sucking basically allowed them to get hold of Jared Ruffhead and Lance Buddy Franklin, Franklin. and that allowed them to basically build another dynasty. Um, so I guess there's that kind of nice symmetry. The kind of interesting thing about the Hawks, and we've spoken a bit about VFL expansion already. So they're among the last teams that come to the competition. So they joined in 1925 with Footscray, Hawthorne and North, makes it 12 teams, which is what it carried itself as until the 1990s. But they flat out sucked. So they played some years in the VFA. They were initially a junior club playing in the Metropolitan Junior Football Association when they were founded in 1902. Uh, they could, uh, sorry, they couldn't keep their or have their brown and gold in the VFA. Um, sorry, I've completely butchered that. When they entered the VFA in 1914, they changed their colours from blue and gold to brown and gold because of Williamsdown, which I still find eminently hilarious that Williamstown's an older club than Hawthorne. Um, but they followed that by winning 11 spoons. So they were known as the May Maybloons until the 1950s. And they generally just sucked. The only teams that sucked consistently more
2: were North and St Kilda. Which is so very odd. And, it's, and it goes back to this conversation we've had the last few weeks about, you know, does pre-war football count in your fandom? Like, are you a deep, proud club because... You're a Blue Bagger fan, and the Blue Baggers were wicked way back in the day, or the same with the Pars, or the same with whatever. And it's like, this is this, like, Hawthorne is the epitome of that. Like, Hawthorne isn't as good of a club as what we think they are if you include their entire history. But they're an exceptional club if you include the bit that's relevant to us as younger people, because we just know them as bit, like, Even our mythology of the 80s and the 70s is like, they were wicked all the time. They were dominant. All the legends of the game came from Hawthorne. And we don't really know anything about the Maybellins.
0: Mm. And so I mentioned there, like, when they come good in 1960 under John Kennedy, who will ask Tony about, they then go on to win 11 flags. So they are unquestionably the powerhouse club of the TV era and the AFL era. So when you consider (laughs) Carlton and Essendon have the most VFL, AFL flags on 16. I spoke to, when I interviewed Pickett Palace for the website, there's a great quote that one of their singers gave me about his kind of anxiety about the race to the 17th flag. But I've kind of got this long haul, or not long held, but kind of freshly kind of formed opinion that there's really AFL-era flags... There's really post-World War II flags and then there's really everything before. To kind of lump them all in saying that winning the flag in an 18-team national competition is any way comparable to winning a flag in an 18 VFL competition or, in one case, a 14-team VFL
2: competition still strikes me as kind of bizarre. Mm. They obviously still count and they're still part of that club's history, but it's like when you're grading the great clubs, I think you need some demarcations for the sake of... Competitive debate. Mm. So from 1960, Hawthorne have
0: won 11 flags. The next best is Carlton with eight and Richmond with seven. Collingwood have only won two flags since 1960. The Cats have won four. And then if you go the AFL era, so 1990 onwards, the Hawks have five flags, Brisbane and Geelong have three. And that's, those numbers are just absolutely ridiculous. So the last 60 years of football, if you're a Hawthorne supporter, You win a flag every five and a half football seasons. The only kind of other quirk in this, and I think there's a huge deep dive that someone needs to do, is the fact that the Powerhouse Modern Club nearly gets merged in 96 with a Powerhouse Club with not a lot going for them. Melbourne have not done anything since the 1950s. And they nearly got to, I don't know, bandwagon with Hawthorne in 1996 because the finances up at the Hawks were crap. They had, I think, a one, 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 one. So they had a million dollar loss basically in 96.
2: Which just again seems very odd. And it goes against the how, like, what makes a good football team winning, what makes a good football club winning enough is probably the answer. And so they were super successful on the field, but they didn't really have that many wins off it. Whereas other clubs like Collingwood, two premierships, in the same it time frame as Hawthorne. It's like, but they are a much better club all round than, than Hawthorne. Mm, it's really, really interesting. Now, you mentioned there, you kind of have an awe for Hawthorne.
0: I wonder how much that changed because of the Kennett curse and Jeff Kennett. So, after the 07 or 08 granny, rather, he kind of slags off Geelong and they can't win big games and then the Hawks go on this... So this streak of 11 straight losses, which they snap in 2013, in 2013, which allows them to win a prelim when they snap that streak and then they go on to win the grand final, go on to do the three peat So how much does the figure of Jeff Kennett, who's kind of a modern patriarch, affect your opinion of the Hawks?
2: Well, I think he definitely rubs people up the wrong way. And people hate the Hawks in part because they hate Jeff Kennett. But I think he also, he has a bit of the... Uh, Eddie Maguire's about him. Like he, he knows that as much as it's a very important role being the president of a football club, you also are kind of like this figurehead that can kind of ignite the fans. And I suppose that's his political history as well, as he knows, he knows how to drive engagement. And so I think he did that. I think he, for better or worse, he was like, let's just make sure that we entrench ourselves in relevancy. And it was worse because they obviously copped a fair few losses, but in the end, they got that 3 P. <laughs>
0: Umpire Chris Mitchell gets the game underway at Princes Park. Before the ding-dong battle of the 1989 Grand Final, Geelong and Hawthorne met in possibly the greatest home-and-away game ever in Round 6 at Princes Park. At 3-2, the up-and-coming Cats had the chance to cement their credentials against the reigning champs, who were 4-1. The match set in motion several of the subplots that make up the momentous narrative of the 1989 Grand Final. Tony Wilson, a Hawthorne player at the time, has literally written that narrative into his new book, 1989, and he joins us for our rewatch, re-watch of the Round 6 Prelude. Tony, welcome. G'day, Gordo. Hello, Jack. So before we launch into uh, getting the nitty-gritty of this one out, I want to get Gordo to do his one-minute flash match recap
2: to start us off. Ingo Gary Singer's Senior's 100th game, the Cats dominated the first half Gavin Excel kicking six goals to give Geelong a commanding 49-point lead. However, Hawthorne started to turn the tide in the third term with Gary Ayres moving from defence to the centre to devastating effect as the Hawks kicked six unanswered goals, reducing the deficit to a far more manageable 19 points at the final break. Both sides demonstrated their attacking prowess in the fourth quarter, combining for a whopping 16 goals. Every time the Cats looked to close the game, Hawthorne would fire back in brutal fashion. In fact, the Hawks put on four goals in six minutes to reduce the deficit to one point. And while a pair of goals from Gary Hocking and Axel was simply halt the Hawks' run, the running premiers responded by kicking five goals in eight minutes. A kick off the ground from James Morrissey gave Hawthorne the lead for the first time in the dying minutes of the match. And after the Hawks had put on almost 70 points the last term, running over the top of the Cats to complete an eight-point victory. Buchanan and Berriton finished with five goals each, while Ayers racked up 30 possessions, roaming in the midfield. But for the Cats, XR ended with nine goals, whilst Ablett was typically classy with 28 touches and three goals to his name. Geelong's score of 25-13, 163, remains the highest losing score in VFL-AFL history. And Malcolm Blythe said that footy was almost always about scoring as quickly as possible. However, as the Cats will find out twice in that year, the Hawks could just score that little bit quicker.
3: Fair summary, Gordon. That is brilliant. There's no, no job left for me to do in terms of the
0: facts. That's them laid bare. So, Tony, to start us off, I want to get a picture of what your role was, was at the Hawks in 1989. So you're a, a young up-and-comer in that, that time.
3: So I was on the outer orbit, in the, and when I say the outer orbit, I was uh, barely had any gravitational pull keeping me there. I was in the under-19s as a 16-year-old. So the way that footy was structured back then is that there was a senior squad of around 50 players, and then there was an under-19s squad also of around 50 players. Um, and I was a young player. I think I played uh, 10 or 12 games in my first year, a bottom-age under-19s player. Um, I would go on to play three years of under-19s footy. I was captain one of the years. Um, and then in 1991, I got drafted as a father-son. Um, and and I only had half a season on the senior list before being delisted in the June draft of 92. But in 1991, I was a very happy and excited kid, getting my first sniff of training on Monday and Wednesday nights while the seniors did Tuesdays and Thursdays. But... They were all around there, you know. You just see them running laps and kicking the balls at each other, and occasionally they'd say something to you. And um, yeah, it was, it was a very exciting time in my life.
2: So, you said you mentioned it on their Mondays and Wednesdays versus their Tuesdays, Thursdays. What's a football club at the top of level of Australian football like in that era? I think it's going to be fairly different to what it is nowadays.
3: Absolutely. So everyone had a job. So Peter Curran's off doing his teaching rounds and Peter Schwab's a PE teacher as well. And Dermot Brereton, well, he was being Dermot. Maybe he was the closest thing to a modern footballer in the sense that he was almost a brand ambassador going to nightclubs and doing his tip-top work. And uh, Gary Bacchanara was a sales rep. Um, They were all, they'd all come in at 5pm with a bag over their shoulder from another day at work. Um, and so when I say Tuesday, Thursdays, they were the main sessions that the players had. Um, they were the ones where, you know, where they went out into the middle of Glenferry Ogle and, and trained under the lights. Um, and, and then Monday and Wednesday, most players would come to the club. So they'd do a recovery jog or they'd do a, a weight session on, on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, so it was getting close to being a four to five day a week training thing, but it was always after work and fitted in around work. Uh, and then the games predominantly were on Saturday still, uh, with maybe one game a week on a Friday night and one game a week on a Sunday. So that was that was the rhythm of footy in that era. Um, and yeah, I, I, I sort of think it was I, I'd call it semi-professional. Best players maybe getting. Um, you know, Dermot might have been on 100 grand or something like that. A lot of players only on 20 or 30 or 40 thousand dollars and needing their income to be supplemented elsewhere.
0: And so, you mentioned your family connection to the Hawks there. So, you more or less grew up around the place. So, I want to get a feel for um, I'm a Richmond supporter. So, Hawthorne's kind of father figure in what I can see was, was John Kennedy. So I wanted you to talk about your own old man and then I also wanted you to briefly give me a sort of a quick edited history of the John Kennedy story.
3: So my dad worships John Kennedy, um, still does. He's the most important uh, mentor in my dad's life. He's the person that he reveres. Um, he, he regards um, what John Kennedy says as a sort of a law I guess Um, And you can just tell so many players who came in in that um, era. And John and Kennedy started coaching in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s. It might have been 1959 or 1960 was his first year. Um, Premiership, 1961. Dad gets there in 1966. And he doesn't play his first season under Kennedy. Because believe it or not, this is such a, a marker of the era. John Kennedy, despite winning the 1961 flag, despite being royalty at Hawthorne, goes off as and becomes a headmaster at stall for a year or two um where i think jack omani becomes the coach of hawthorne but it's it's like (laughs) the idea that a coach just goes off and does his job he can't he obviously can't coach hawthorne while he's in stall gets repositioned by the education department and just disappears from the vfl for a couple of years uh, and then comes back and and that's when Dad encounters um, Kennedy at the start of 67. And Dad just talks about the, the speaking style, the command of the room, the big, deep voice and the citing of Marx and talking about Marx and Jesus Christ and um, the major figures of history, these sort of towering speeches that were often very intimidating, I think. Um, very intelligent man, very eloquent man, quite a scary man, I think. Um, and, and they always, they they laugh at, the players of that era laugh at uh, at the lack of personal contact with Kennedy. It was always, he was a front of the room teacher. Um, and so, so, you know, they can count on one hand the kind of personal one-on-one conversations they had with him. Uh, but at the same time, he kind of commanded respect. And there were all these sayings, these rules about... You know, that injuries are all above the head and, you know, like it was, it was, uh, oh, sorry, all above the shoulders um, and, and uh, the, the the combination of what you can fit into your life. He was kind of um, work, footy and girlfriends. He kind of believed that girlfriends should fall by the wayside a bit. Um, you know, he sort of, he sort of had that knack of, of, of little aphorisms and, and rules that the players had to live by. And so that's what dad was raised on. And he gets his great glory in 1971 uh, with the premiership. And, you know, that's, I think, been a, a lasting thing of pride and happiness that that game has given dad. Um, and the gratitude he has for Kennedy, for having him in the side and for uh, and for guiding him through that period is profound. And so in the 70s, dad actually retired. When I was born, I was born 72. Dad's finished. Um, he starts coaching uh, the kind of development squads, uh, Ayer squad was one of them. The baby hawk is called an Ayer. And so the under 15s were coached by dad. Um, and uh, and he had some guns in, in his squads. Dermot was in the IR squad. I think Chris Langford was, Richard Loveridge was, you know, players that went on to become premiership stars, went through this development um, team with dad. And I would turn up on the Sunday mornings and, and see the players. And I'd you know, meet Don Scott and Peter Knights and Lee Matthews. And, you know, they were, they were a part of my week on, on a Sunday morning. And so I guess I was in the beam of Hawthorne life. Um, my dreams were nurtured um, and very, very much uh, front and centre. I, I didn't have many other ambitions other than being a Hawthorne footballer. And so in 1989, I was, um, you know, just so excited. I felt like I was getting closer um I, within two, two years later i would think i was very close but in 1989 i was filled with hope
2: that's one side of the story and for probably this this uh, conversation the good guys but every uh, epic battle needs the bad guys and that seems to be geelong and for my entire lifetime it has been the case that hawthorne and geelong are the archest of rivals but was that always the case prior to 1989
3: i don't think so so i i think that that this starts in 1989 to a large extent. 1963, Hawthorne and Geelong played in a grand final and Geelong won it um, and they won it comfortably. But there was, there's no lore about that game other than the better side winning, I think. Um, it was when Polly Farmall was dominant and, and they had a very good side. But I don't think there's, a, there's any mythology or hatred that developed between the two clubs as a result of the 63 grand final. And so it's only these two games that we're going to talk about tonight that kind of light the spark on the rivalry, um, the round six game and, and the grand final of 1989. And even you'd say that after 1989, it was such a titanic struggle, one that, that was immediately recognised as a classic grand final. I think um, there wasn't hatred between the two clubs, even through the 90s. I think that what actually has um, has torched the rivalry, the thing that's made it, um, you know, just one of the more intense footy rivalries. It was 08 and Hawthorne pinching a premiership when Geelong were clearly the best side that year and, and deserved to win that grand final, I think. And I'm a Hawthorne man. And so it's it's joyous for Hawthorne people, that grand final, because it's, it, just, it, just, it just shouldn't happen. And then when Jeff Kennett goes and rubs their noses in it by saying they can't win big ones and that Hawthorne are just the sort of club that wins and Geelong are the sort of club that loses those ones, um, and then and then Geelong win the next 13 or whatever it is, then that's when you've got something special and something pretty virulent.
1: Walks <laughs> in attack. Deer up high. Tapped down by Gary Hocking.
0: Flick back. Anderson. Snap for goal. Close. Brereton. So this all kind of starts in round six. So we'll kind of get to that match now. So did you go to Princess Park that day?
3: No, I didn't. Dad was there. I think he, because he was my key to getting to most games. I was 16 years old. Um, so I, I mainly went with my dad and we'd sit in the Robert Heatley stand at Princess Park and often go down in the rooms beforehand. Um, but on that occasion, he, I think, was in a corporate sort of thing. He had a special ticket. And so he remembers being there and watching it but I definitely wasn't with him. So I would have only seen it on the re- – in those days, no live footy um, on the Saturday afternoon. And so I would have seen the replay that night at this famous game. I actually remember listening on the radio thinking we cooked. Oh, I can't believe we're getting – because Hawthorne never got beaten like that. And so I remember thinking, 50 points down, this is unbelievable. And then, you know, celebrating around the radio as they as they got home.
2: And so what else is unbelievable is the fact that this uh, game happened twice to Geelong, two weeks in a row, the week before that happened to them against Fitzroy at the same ground as well. And uh, you mentioned in your book that Malcolm Blunt had an interesting uh, take on how he would get the boys back up for this game. Can you talk through some of the uh, folklore behind that training session?
3: So, Blight was furious the previous week. I think they were 31 points or 33 points up at three-quarter time and lost by a point pretty much on the siren to Cats. And so, it was a real choke. And Blight um, had a whole of club meeting in the rooms after the game where he dressed down the players and said, you know, bring your mouth guards on Monday. It's going to be torrid. And they were they were in a state of panic. Um, they all remember just how furious he was, and 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 he sort of gave a big speech about where is the club at, and you know what what do we accept here at Geelong, and you know get ready for some pain. And then they arrive on the Monday morning, and and he used to he was a meticulous coach, Blighty. They often you know talk about his eccentricities and his um, you know attacking flair and his elan and, and these sorts of things, but. But he was a very careful preparer and a very careful analyzer of what happened on a footy field. And on this occasion, he always used to write a blackboard of what of what what would be on at training that night. He'd say what the drills were, and and his only instruction on the whiteboard or blackboard was "Don't get changed." Um, <laughs> and so they're they're just bewildered. They don't know whether this is a disaster or if it's good. And then he kind of breezes in and and and. Uh, and says, okay, a couple of you blokes have just become pub owners. Um, and that was Flanagan and Linda, who'd who bought the Valley Inn just down the road from Canina Park. Okay, so a couple of you blokes have just become pub owners. Uh, don't get changed. Come down to the pub. We better christen their pub for them. Um, you've got to stay for two hours. You don't have to drink. You do have to stay for two hours, and we're going to have a good time. And that was it. And so they went to the pub, and and Linda Flanagan said, said he made eye contact with Linda and went, "Oh, we haven't got enough staff on. You know, fifty <laughs> blokes are about to arrive." Um, and uh, and so that is a story. When I spoke to the Geelong players, absolutely every one of them brought up that after the crushing loss against Fitzroy, they um, they went to the pub on the Monday night, and and whatever you think of the following week, which is Hawthorne round six, where they. Cough up a forty-nine pointer. Um, it's it's sort of one of the great games in history, and and, and Geelong's score. What you, did you tell me? It was uh, uh, one hundred and sixty-one points or something. Some ridiculous.
2: Yeah, one sixty-three. Yeah, one sixty-three
3: points. Um, some ridiculous score. That you, you wouldn't say that they that they uh, you know that, that they did anything other than turn up for the game. They were wonderful, really, and uh, and so. And so it worked. It got the team together. And within two or three weeks, they're kicking 30 goals a week and and on the streak. So a lot of the players look back fondly on that trip to the pub as a real season setter.
0: The most amazing thing about that story is it's not the weirdest thing that Malcolm Blight does in the week leading up to round six. So he concocts this intricate plan of how the cats are going to line up on the day that eventually turns into a poison challenge. Real at ground level and umpire Cameron's going to have to come in and ball it up and one of
1: the major moves is Gary Ablett has lined up on the wing on Robert Dippia Domenico. Mark Boss playing on Dermot Brereton in these first couple of minutes at least.
3: So speaking to Malcolm Blight was one of the Singular pleasures of my life. He was so fun and interesting, and everything that pours out of him is a story. And it's just—he it, is magnetic. And he—he he comes out and says, "Oh, so yeah, we we've uh, lost against Fitzroy, and I'm thinking, oh well, we all know how Hawthorne's going to line up. They—they um, they don't change anything. They don't have to. It's just this stable lineup. And I thought, I know what we'll do. We'll we'll play man on man." And by man on man, I don't mean man on man, let's play them close. I mean same man on same man. And then he laughed. And I said, Oh, and he said, Yeah, it's, it's actually quite a silly idea when I think about it. But I thought, let's really focus on accountability. And I'll give each of the, my blokes a name, and that's their player for the day. And that means that, you know, for example, Ablett had Dippier Domenico. No matter where Dippier Domenico is, Ablett plays on Dippiato Minico, um, and to begin with, uh, McGuinness is playing on Brownless. So Brownless, wherever McGuinness goes, um, it's it's the, the the matchup is set. There's no flexibility, and um, and it was quite a. <laughs> and then he laughs and said, "It's actually quite a bad idea, but but the result." <laughs> <laughs> the results that yielded were so spectacular. They kicked 17 goals in the first half. They kicked, they kicked um, 12 goals in seven minutes in the second quarter. So it's like this demolition of, of, of gargantuan proportions. Um, the heavyweight champions are just rattled. Um, and they're running around with this rule in place where you know, Ayers and Yates are an assigned pair. Yates has to stay with um, Ayers. And no matter where he goes and what positional changes are made, they have to move. And I don't think Jeans is onto it. It's so crazy that it takes a little while to seep through. So there is one moment, and probably the giveaway moment was when Ablett is lighting up the game. um, uh, To to quote Malcolm Blight. I think Malcolm White says he's best on ground by an absolute minute at halftime, and he's playing his hundredth game. He's balking. he's taking screamers. There's a goal where he 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 Bruce must kick a seventy metre goal from the centre square. It is it, it is one of the most beautiful and balanced and brilliant halves uh, of football ever played, um, and and Dipper is getting pantsed, um by Abbott, but the rule is in place, so. Jeans probably accidentally thinks, we've got to get Tony Hall onto Ablett um, because Dipper can't handle this um, and we've got to try something different. Dipper goes to the forward pocket. Ablett, best on ground by a minute, is now standing in the back pocket. Well, Geelong is so strong at the moment. Ablett's playing in the back pocket, having kicked three
1: goals from the wing earlier in the game. Well, it's actually taken Ablett out of the game, but that's the
3: discipline of the side. He's down there and he's got to accept it. So, having been best on ground by a mile at half time, um, the second half of the second quarter, I'm not even counting that because Abbott's standing in the back pocket next to Dipper. And Dipper says he remembers just looking across <laughs> going, and going, I saw Buck and Arrow and Bear Stowe was in the back other back pocket. And then there's Dunstall between us. And then I look over to Gary and he's next to me in the back pocket. I said to Gary, What the fuck's going on here? <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And so, and so it was just bizarre. And, and the rule was in place. Um, it had worked so well to halftime. Uh, but the idea that Abbott then stood next to Dippy Domenico for 10, years, 10 minutes probably clicked in to Gene's thinking. And he went, they are doing this. Um, what will happen if I take Dipper off? And so the third quarter, Dipper goes off the ground. And so um, that's... That's you know that's the key moment of the game, and all the Geelong guys go. Malcolm lost us that game. He broke his own rule. Malcolm was a big one for rules, and that day he broke his rule, and and that's because um, he watched he watched Dipper go to the bench, and he just couldn't do it. He sat there in the in the in the box, thinking, Oh, I'm not Gary. He's firing. He's flying. I can't take him off. And and the rest of the box is going, Malcolm, you said you said. Malcolm, you've got to take him off, you said. And he couldn't do it. And so he kept him on the wing. And, um, and, and, and you know, Abbott didn't quite have the same sort of second half as he had first half. And, and you know, and, and, and Blight and the Geelong people think that that's the moment that the game was lost when, when the rule changed, um, when, he, when he broke his own rule. Um, and Yates always brings up, you know, that he had a really good first half against Ayers with from a half forward flank and and airs and was on a half back flank. Jeans's default move when things weren't going well would have, was to move Ayers into the centre. And Yates says he goes out after half time. He sees Ayers standing in the centre square. Ayers is the name that's been given to him at the start of the day. He knows the rule. And then the runner comes out to him and says, No, you stay on the half back flank, Yatesy. Um we're gonna we're gonna leave couch on Ayers. And so so the rule wavered, um, and Yates just says, oh, ears went on, too big for Couchy, best on ground um, in the second half. Um, and, and so this kind of, this, this crazy rule um, wavered in the second half, and, and the Geelong players uh, blame it for the loss. Second half about to get underway. A
1: 49-point lead to the Cats. Dippia Domenico on the bench for the Hawks after getting a thrashing from Adler in the first half. Anderson to Mew, but there's no room through there. And the umpire will pull. So that kind of
2: alludes to the the coaching styles back then. It seems like in the late 80s, even early 90s, a lot of coaches seem to be either man managers and then they do like positional changes. But it's not like today where there's is, you know, it's a 400-page manual to learn how to play modern-day AFL footy. Did they dumb it down for players? Did they just keep it simple? Why, why didn't they have as much convoluted tactics as we do nowadays?
3: Well, they didn't have as many people thinking about it. Um, the, so Blight, every club Blight went to, he had a thing called the rules. Um, and these were general <laughs> guiding principles that were hard and fast rules that his players had to abide by. And they were things like, if you're on the boundary line, um, you centre it to centre half forward. Um, if you are from, if you are playing with the wind, uh, if, you, if you're you're allowed to go for, you have to punch from behind when you're kicking into the wind because the ball's more likely to fall short, and so you, you can't go for your hangers. But if you if are kicking with the wind, you're allowed to go for your hangers. So he thought about it. And they were quite specific, like that. Um, and and so and so he he thought about the most likely scenario to produce open and fast footy. He was into things like the double switch, and it was all just put down there as a guiding principle of what you must do when you get the ball in certain circumstances. Uh, but it wasn't there wasn't anything like team defence. So so. Basically, players went out each week as they had for 100 years and they had a person they were playing on and it was a one-on-one contest and you tried to beat that person. Um, There was very little in the way of we put people in the hole. In fact, Malcolm Blight actively uh, ordered his Ruckman not to drop back. So when you think of that brilliant grand final that Darren Flanagan plays, um, he is playing on Greg Deere because it was common for, the, for, for Ruckman to drop back in the hole, even nowadays, right? So mm. they fill the space, um, the dangerous space for, for, when, for when teams are going forward. The big fella goes in there and, and clogs it up. Well, Flanagan was told not to do that. Do not get a kick behind the play. Play on the opposition Ruckman and make him accountable as we're going forward. And so, they effectively had an extra forward because other teams didn't do that. And so, um, and so, rather than even thinking of team defence, this is team attack, really. Like, it's no wonder they're kicking 30 goals a week because they're not even sticking anyone back, an extra player back, um, yeah, to, to, to help out the tall defenders, which was, that was law. You know, people had done that for 30 years. Big fellas went back into defence. So, you've got Blight doing that. and. Um, and I think Hawthorne were just so good that they were... You know, there was no team defence. At no point in these two games do you see a single player go back to clog up defence. Mm-hmm. So there's teams that have got run-ons. There's Hawthorne with a six or seven-goal lead. Why not put next to one back? You almost can't lose the grand final if Abbott has no space to work in. But, but teams just didn't think like that. It didn't exist until Terry Wallace and the... In the early 2000s, you know, so, so that's why it's a, it's a, they're beautiful games. <laughs> they're, they're a combination of high levels of skill, um, much higher levels of skill than 70s footy, um, but they've still got the 100-year-old tradition of, of trying to move the ball down the ground to your team as best you can. Still inside 50, gets round on the right boot, Jason Dunstall. Brereton on the goal line. Yes!
1: Unbelievable, Jamie Perrikan. First half, he wasn't concentrating on going for the ball. He was doing a little bit of the rough stuff. Now going for his fifth goal, and he shouldn't miss it from there. That's five goals, three this quarter, to two behinds.
2: Three goals in this quarter to Dermot Kerrigan. So you mentioned Dermot there as well being a rather unique individual. I think my kind of uh, paradox of Demi as a player is you always feel, I always feel watching these replays that if he just focused more on the ball, he might have been like an all-time great. Like he's, He is an all-time great, but he could have been like at the, the top of the peak. But was he that good because he was this unique, loose rage unit that could both kill you with the football or without it? he's definitely um, so
3: he was a phenomenal talent um, but he had everything there's nothing that Dermot lacks as a footballer the only thing he lacks really is height um, but as a, he's, he's a top 10 sprinter in the club he's a top 10 middle distance runner in the club he's a very, very, very adequate long distance runner um, he's He's a, he can jump. Um, he's he he built his upper body into being a wrecking machine, and and he understood where to run. So he under, he had um, re- reading the game knowledge and talent as well, um, and so he could run players off their legs. He could outlead them. He could outjump them, and he was better at knowing where the ball would be. So just as a footballer, Dermot was probably a better tall player. Oh, he's the I be- mean, Dunstall is, is his equal or his better, but Dermot is a, a complete footballer. You know, I think if he was two inches taller, he really would be up in the carry category. But in terms of the, um, the violence, you know, that, that, was, that creates the legend of Dermot. I think it made him incredibly difficult to play against because you didn't know what would happen and it was frightening. To, to, and, and it also meant that the team had a solution and almost a, an adrenaline shot that could be applied when required. So um, there's a bit in the book where I mentioned that Platten used to just, dermatists used to say, run them down my end and I'll see what I can do about the, the taggers. Um, <laughs> you know, like a, you know, it's sort of like going to visit a doctor, Platts. Um, yeah, run them down my end and I'll see what I can do. I might be able to fix that up for you. Um, it's actually funny because Ablett said exactly the same thing to Paul Couch when he was getting mauled by taggers. Just get him up my end, Couchy, and I'll fix him up for you. So these um, brilliant, coordinated and dangerous um, talents, they uh, they they looked after their little guys. Um, and, you know, in terms of the um, value to the side, there's... there's um, it's, it's a really interesting thing with the role violence played in the 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s footy. I mean, it was actually just beginning to be moderated by 1989. Trial by video was maybe in its second year. Um, and that changed things dramatically, for the better, I would say. But, um, but because there had been no trial by video and, and thinking back to Dad's era, when there's one umpire, it's actually open slather. You know, you can just... Um, my dad talks about a guy called Delicate Des Dixon who played at Hawthorne. And dad said it was just terrifying to watch him hit guys. You know, they they just run around and hit people um, in elbows, forearms, swinging punches. You know, it's a dangerous place to be out there. And, and Dermot was a cuss player because he could do a bit of that. And, and, and when you watch what's going on in 89... And what he did to Yates, which I, I presume we're about to get to, um, that's you know that's horrendous, um, and and you wouldn't even contemplate it now, um, but just because he's kind of lost his temper, he runs his knee through someone's testicles, so you know that that, um, but the effect is that the, he could electrify the the team, I reckon, and so the the. There are many games where Dermot, uh, the most notable being the second semi-final in 1989, where in 20 minutes he takes out three guys, and I don't think he has a kick in that period. But you know, every player says that Essendon are finished in the second semi of '89 because of Dermot, Dermot's 20 minutes of destruction. So. So the answer is: um, Could he have been a better player? Maybe he would have played more footy if he wasn't suspended as much. And his body took a massive t- battering. So he was the oldest 28-year-old footballer in history. Um, and so you know it shortened his career, and he missed a lot of footy through suspension. But wow, five grand, five premierships, and um, you know eight goals in a losing grand final, and five goals on debut, and. 20-odd goals in grand finals and a club championship and played for Victoria and dominated for Victoria. I mean, he's right up there, isn't
1: he? Abbott put Brereton down behind the play with a shepherd and Brereton looking for a free. We haven't seen those two on each other as yet in the game, even though it was talked about in the pre-game build-up. <laughs> oh, oh, that was a free kick. How could the umpire miss that, Bernie? That was a dead set charge. Well, maybe he was behind the pack and couldn't see what had happened, but uh, Brereton just absolutely charged the Geelong player there. Well, Mark Yates is the man down, Dermot went straight at him, and down he went. Oh, well done by Whitman. Dipier Domenico! And he has just missed, but Mark Yates is still down behind the play. There's Dipier Domenico, there's Yates now being attended to. The difference of three straight goals, but... Very lucky, Dermot, to get away without giving a free kick there.
0: Yates Yates going off. Mark Yates after that heavy knock from Brereton. Going off the ground, copped it very low. You mentioned that Dermot as a role player, but also as someone who is highly skilled. And kind of in the second half of round six, you get both of those things because Dermot's third quarter is just an immense display of pure footballing ability. And then in the last quarter, there's that brutal moment where he puts his knee into Yates' testicles. So you kind of get almost a complete picture of Dermot in, in one half. Is that kind of how you see round six?
3: Dermot comes out like someone who has something to prove in the third quarter. It's a, it's a scintillating 20 minutes, the, the gathering of the ball you know, in, near the goalposts and the marking on the goal line and bustling and hitting and tackling. and it's, he, he really plays a, a fantastic quarter, as you say. Um, and then the last quarter has the violent hit in it, and Dermot I think goes on and kicks his fifth goal as well, which is important in in getting the Hawks to a match winning lead so yeah it was all on display um pretty much in that in that round six game um, He ends up with five goals he 's not really one of hawthorne 's best players it 's actually an interesting feature of the the five goals nowadays would just it 's all automatically best on ground pretty much isn 't it but in that era, a five-goal haul, you could play as a forward, kick five, and not not have one of his explosively best games. He had that patch, that third quarter patch where he dominates the game, uh, and it's a match winning period for Hawthorne. Um, but yeah, as you say, it's, it's, it's all out there.
2: Talking about a different type of character now, but... During, I found it interesting during, well, listening back to the commentary as well because obviously the game style is very different but also the commentary is very different. But some of the things stay true to nowadays footy. One is they love bagging the umpires and two, love pointing out when a player is uh, taking, taking the piss a little bit. So was Michael Tuck the original Joel Selwood? And it comes from uh, the commentary where basically he's been um, outed by the comms team saying that every time he's tackled, he throws himself forward and convinces the umpire to give him a free kick. And that obviously happens a couple of times in this game. And nowadays that's the silver tactic of ducking into a high tackle.
3: So I wouldn't have thought that at all. In fact, that's a Drew Morfitt comment, I think, or is it a comment? So I don't, I didn't think that that was an accurate statement about Tucky. I didn't think he was a stager in, in any way. Um, He was the thing that's misunderstood about Tuck. I think is that he was incredibly dirty. So like there's a, so, so Hawthorne had all sorts of tough players. Um, Tuck had the combination of being really coordinated, skilled, brave. Um, he was probably the tackler of his era um, in terms of closing speed and the long, rangy, strong limbs and able to just pull people down. And, and, and watching the 1989 Grand Final in particular where he has the most number of tackles on the ground, it's, it's like watching the prototype of the modern defensive midfielder. But um, I, I never thought of him as a stager. Uh, but, but what I've been told is that he was the sort of guy who'd step on a hand and stuff when it was there in the way. You know, it just had a little bit of a nasty streak in him um, and, and that it was an unpleasant experience to be tagged by Tuck and, or to be, to be picked up by him. Um, in, you know, he was, he was quite a physical and, in, and, and, and just a niggly, um, annoying player to play on. Uh, and, and this is late in the career, but you know, early in the career, a brilliant player. Um, um, and you know he he was a fantastic leader. I, would, I just, you know, there's not a lot, of, I'm not as big a huge, bigger Drew Morfitt fan as some others. And, and I just think he's wrong on that front that he, that he staged for freeze.
1: Well, Billy Brown has, is about 60 to 65 metres out, not without a chance. From inside the centre square, look at that go. What a kick! A mammoth kick by Bill Brownless.
0: Already had five kicks, two marks. And that's his second goal. So we often, we go through at the end of these segs and kind of pick out a moment of the match. I could not believe the Brownless talk from inside the square for how well he hit it and how far it looks like it went. Now, I'm suspecting that it didn't quite go as far as I thought it did, but it was still... An unbelievable! It it's gone through like what post high from the square. I'd love that one to be measured.
3: So it's a tricky ground, Princess Park. It was a beautiful ground to play football on. Just such a great surface and a really good shape to it. Um, but I think it's—I think it is shorter than the MCG slightly. Um, but the so maybe so maybe these they look they look seventy-five meters. These goals. Um, maybe they're only sixty-five. <laughs> but they look 75 metres, which makes us worry, wonder about the blight kick, which is well in the centre square in, against Carlton in the late 70s, which we always think of as 80 metres or so. But are we tricked at Prince's Park? Is it just shorter than, than you think? Um, I, I don't have the answer to that.
2: The other amazing thing about Billy Brown's state game was I never realised that Billy was so good below his, like, below his knees. So there's one, my actual moment is the moment it didn't happen But he's he's streaming along the boundary line. He scoops up Gary Ablett-esque, then goes like that inside-out snap and then just kicks the behind. And everyone's just like, that should have been a goal, which it definitely should have been for the value of his efforts. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I never realised that I always, in my head, well, I imagine Billy being Billy now, which is big Billy, and that like being more of like a lead-out forward marking type as opposed to this agile, uh, more, yeah, Gary ablett light style footballer.
3: So he was played on a half-forward flank that day in the first quarter, and there's a real argument that he is best on ground at quarter time. He's, he's kicked three, and as you say, the one that would have been his fourth would have been goal of the year. He gives an absolute bath to Scott McGuinness, and, and I interviewed Scott McGuinness for the 89 grand final book, and, and McGuinness just... I asked him about this game, and he says, it is the greatest nightmare of my life, that game. I, 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 <laughs> I've never played a worse game of football in my life. So, and, and when you think about it, he really has been towed up because those three are kicked on McGuinness um, in the first quarter. And then they move, I think they move Langford on to Brownless. Although Brownless gets injured and goes off the ground in the second quarter of round six. Um, but McGuinness gets moved off Brownless and on to Exel. <laughs> Just in time for Exel to kick his three or four goals Exel kicks four goals in twelve minutes in the second quarter, so so by um, by half time, McGinnis has conceded seven. So <laughs> you can sort of see why you can see why Scotty doesn't love the game, um, and uh, I think Exel ends up with nine. So McGuinness, I think has something on the lines of nine goals kicked on him in the mm. round six game.
0: Yeah. So did you have a a moment that was your favourite from this clash?
3: I was watching it tonight and there was one where I just thought I'd mention this guy because he was just so sublimely talented and that that was Tony Hall. Um, He puts his hand on the ball like a basketballer and, um, and traps it and spins his body 360 degrees and gets a handball out. I don't think we end up with a goal from it, but it was like a moment of skill where you just went, wow, this guy is just such a great footballer. He didn't play in the grand final, of course, and I think he was um, runner-up or top five in the Brownlow the year before, 89. Um, He was really arriving as a footballer. But that moment of skill, I looked at it and thought, um, there aren't too many players that could have done that.
0: I had a question that kind of followed on from this, because when I think about... Retrospectively, and I think about the names that are talked about from this Hawthorne era, Bacchanara is one, having watched these games, this and the 89 Granny, that kind of stars or plays a very important role in both, but isn't mentioned. So is he just criminally underrated?
3: I think maybe from your generation. So from people of my generation, the people who watched him a lot, I don't reckon he is so much. So, and especially over in WA, he's worshipped. You know, he was a star in state footy. There were games where he kicked five or six goals, I can still remember. Um, And he came over reasonably late. So, he was in his mid-20s when he started at Hawthorne. So, he played brilliant waffle footy. Um, And he just regularly did brilliant and spectacular things. He, He was a fast twitcher. So, he... Um, Jumped high And in fact There's a moment In the 1986 Grand Final That's one of the great Still images Of Grand Final history Where he is Just as high As you can imagine A player being On a footy field It would have been Mark of the century That he drops um, 1986 Grand Final 1989 Grand Final He he, Do do you know that Diving one Over the boundary line Where he's Superman He's full Mm. outstretched And he somehow Manages to mark it Whilst diving fully, um, you know, fully outstretched, and you think, it takes so much still skill to do that. And he does it outside the field of play, so it doesn't sort of count as a highlight. But just to see him do it, and and the way that he kicked the ball, he had this really neat kicking style and um, and very straight kick at goal, and and um and so there was really no weakness to him. He wasn't a massively tough footy put footballer because um. Because he, he was a, a reasonably light framed guy. Uh, and he had a face a little bit like an accountant. And during the week, he used to wear kind of thin rimmed glasses. And there was, it was a real Clark Kent element to him. You, you wouldn't look at him and think, this guy, or, he goes out and dominates football games, does he? Um, and, yet, and yet, when he played, it was just sublime. And, and as I said, fast twitch. So he was quick and, and coordinated and skillful and just good. Yeah. Um, and so when, when they collate the great players of the era, I'm not sure if Bacchanara, he's not Hall of Fame, is he? Which is, you know, he really should be. And so, you know, it's only that there's Ayres and Langford and Dermy and Dipper and Dunstall and Platten and, and Tuck. And that's just getting to seven. Um, you know, the, the idea that Bucky comes in eight or nine or 10, which is probably where he is, um, you know, that just says what a good side they were. Well, what a game of football we've seen here at Princess Park. The two highest scoring teams in the league this year
1: Hawthorne, the top, Geelong, and they've proved it by kicking 51 goals between them. And Hawthorne have come from 49 points down at half time to win a thriller by eight points.
2: Does this game give us the prototype kind of template to what a great classic can be? And so we've done a couple of the rewatchables so far this year. And it seems to be that the games that really kind of resonate with us, are games that are kind of free-flowing and high-scoring for three quarters, and then there's a kind of like a building crescendo. And so this one has the added benefit of, obviously, the momentum swings back and forth. But is that, is that kind of like what we, the royal we, the we that we can never actually work out who it is, wants from a great footy game?
3: Well, I, I was trying to think whether this is as good a game as the... Um As the grand final. I don't think it has the intensity of the grand final. It certainly doesn't. So the grand final is a brutal and violent thing. Uh, And there is, even though the goals flow in the grand final and the ball pings around and it's spectacular and beautiful to watch as well. There's also a, a, there's a dangerous level of physical contact going on. Whereas I, I think the round six game is, is a much more free flowing affair. It is, the, the players are not brutalizing each other to the same extent and, and um and, and so it doesn't sort of sit as on the same at the same level for me uh but the the momentum swings and the story around six you know it's just weird you know you just never so i just watched that first quarter and thought Hawthorn are playing brilliantly here um i think Hawthorne kicked the first two and um there's another patch where they kick three in a row as well and you think Hawthorne have kicked six or seven goals and they're going to be 49 points down at half time. You know, it's, it's just such a weird game. And, mm. and the, the goals, when they come, they come so fast. It's, it's just amazing. It's um, yeah. It's like uh, it's like the ball is traveling further than it normally does or something. And the players, are, the <laughs> players, are, it's, it is, it's just a, it's just an, uh, an anomaly. I, I, I've, I've never seen a game like it. and and But the, for levels of excitement, as I said, um, I don't think the game felt in the balance as much as as it sort of does in retrospect. You go eight points, well, that's really close. Whereas re-watching it, I kind of feel, um, oh, Bears has gone in the middle. Geelong have kind of stopped dead and Hawthorne can't lose this. And... It, and even to the point where you know they get twenty points up and you go seventy point turnaround you you know that's it's 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 not a great effort from Geelong in the second half mm. um and and so you could but you know like I'm thinking of round fourteen of uh, of two isn't no Sorry, round what's the uh, round fourteen, 14 two thousand and nine yeah two thousand and nine so there's a game where you just go these two teams are perfectly matched and they're magnificently skilled and it's a slug fest, It's tough. It's skillful. It's brilliant. Um, you don't know which way it's going to go. So there's, there's elements of a game like that where, um, or, the, or the 2011 preliminary final, um, you know, Hawthorne and Collingwood, where it's just incredibly skillful sides, can't separate them. I, I thought this was one where Geelong had a perfect Hawthorne were a better side and swamped them Um, and and the narratives of this game are good interesting but um, not on a par with the grand final um, of a few months later Um, Mm. it's it's yeah it really it's a scene setter rather than an all-time great game it began as a dream under the hot summer sun 1,000 athletes paying
1: the price in the hope of being a part of that one day in September. Finally, it came down to 40 players. For two teams, the dream is now close to reality. Hawthorne, a mean fighting machine looking to make it back-to-back Premiership wins. And Geelong, the glamour side of the season. The flashy cats have taken all before them and are now set to challenge for their first flag since 1963. This is the 1989 VFL Grand Final.
0: I'm going to talk specifically about the book and the 89 Grand Final. So to start our pivot, I'm intrigued as to how Tony Wilson, the under-19s footballer, became Tony Wilson, the writer, speaker, storyteller. So how did you make that jump out of being kind of an up-and-coming footballer? You kind of chewed up and spat out by the Hawks and then you end up kind of re-emerging in this era as this kind of footy writer, footy speaker?
3: Well, it's been a long journey. So, uh, I guess in 1995, I was delisted in 1992. I had a brief stint as a solicitor at Minter Ellison, quite an unhappy period. In 1995, I had another go at Essendon. Um, actually, I broke my jaw on Doc Wieldham's knee, Darren Wieldham's knee, in a intra-club game. <laughs> Uh, near the freeway in Essendon. And um, I think Doc Wieldon then broke his knee on a King Street taxi uh, just weeks after he put me out of footy. Um, so it didn't go, I didn't get through, it didn't get drafted by Sheedy and Essendon in 95. But by that point, I sort of knew I'd given up my best shot and I wasn't good enough. Um, um, and, and then I started just trying to think, what, what am I going to do? I, I only ever wanted to be a footballer. Um, and I, I remember a crisis meeting with my dad at the Noodle Bar in Burke Street, and he was sort of saying, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I don't want to be a lawyer. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I sort of thought back, and I would liked writing. I, I'd written for the school magazine. I'd written for Farago at Melbourne Uni. Um, I'd even written a few pieces for the footy record as a VFA player. And, um, and uh, Dad said, oh, well, for someone who says he likes writing, you don't do very much writing. And, and and I I um, took that as a, a good bit of helpful criticism and I went and started trying to write a travel book um, and it was the process of doing that um, that I heard about Race Around the World, watched a bit of the first series and thought, um, you know, why not apply for that? And so there was this travel documentary show that I got on and I, and I won in 1998. I travelled around the world, 10 countries in 100 days Visited, you know, Bolivia or Idaho, Alaska, Italy, France, Israel, <coughs> Kenya, India, and China, and did these videos from those countries. Um, it was really uh, an eye opener, and it made me think: I don't have to be a lawyer. You know, I'm good enough to win this show. I can, um, and I, 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 can start writing stories and producing little documentaries. and And I did that. I did it for a decade. I did it at ABC. I, I um, made various different stories i wrote a novel in 2004 did a breakfast radio for six years so this kind of creative career sort of built itself um and, and in some ways if anything i've been a little bit rudderless you know I've, I've written um i've written picture books i wrote a book called the cow tripped over the moon um harry high pants granny saurus rex you know these are all kids books and at the same time writing adult books, Australia United was a trip around Germany in 2006 with the Australian Socceroos fans and players was a parody about the footy show. And um, I wrote another novel called making news. So all of this was kind of building towards a creative career. And then um, the footy, the footy story, this 1989 one was not actually my idea. It was um, the publisher, Jeff Slattery, who's a a Hawthorne man um, in his heart. But a footy publisher who's, who's published a lot of the big footy books, um, he said, "Look, I reckon we're doing this sports. Short, we're doing a sports short series, um, thirty-five thousand words on various events and people and things. Will you do? Will you do thirty-five thousand words on the eighty-nine Grand Final for me?" And and I sort of thought, "Oh," and in the end, I did it. It was kind of like, um, "It will be. It will be fun to meet those heroes again." Um, And in the process of doing it, I wrote 55,000 words Uh, and he went, you know, and when I handed it in, he kind of went, we really like this. Like we really like it. And I don't really want to cut out 20,000 words. So let's not make it a sports short series. Let's give it its own title and put an inset of photos in it and release it six months later and, um, and make it a feature release. And so, um, and so that's how it happened.
0: So, do you kind of have an overall or an overarching ethos as a writer? Do you kind of have what's your kind of core idea that you're trying to bring to, to something like this book?
3: I reckon the worst sports books are ones that don't add to what you can watch when you're watching the game, or they kind of deal with cliches and things that you already know about the principal actors. And so, my, my goal throughout was to speak to players who would tell me stories um, and you know just little vignettes so, so when, when Tim Darcy of Geelong tells me that, that to train Blight used to always try to think of things that would make Gary be, Abbott be in, interested and they had to be competitive they had to be competitive things um, or else he'd just lose interest and so they went to Bacchus Marsh Lion Park and they'd turn on spotlights, and they'd have to chase rabbits. Um, and that idea of, and Tim Darcy just wide-eyed saying to see Gary out after the rabbits, you know, and it, and it was that sort of idea of watching an athletic freak doing something that he was enjoying. And apparently, Darren Flanagan went, "Oh yeah, we we caught eight rabbits. Gary caught five of them." <laughs> it was like uh, this, this uh, that, that, that sort of idea that we as footy fans. Sort of imagine what we think the footy world is and, and what training is and but but having Gary Ablett out chasing Rabbits at, at Bacchus Marsh um, Lion Park you know that's just so so weird and wonderful and so it's when I hear those things I go well that's in that's in um, you know they, all the Hawthorne players forever, and and with Hawthorn it was a little easier because I could I knew the stories often that that make. Uh, other fabric of the club so DiPierre Domenico um, he he uh, got dropped in 1982 after getting five possessions in a game um, and he then boozes on in the trainer's room Alan Jeans can hear his loud voice basically bad mouthing him because he's heard that he's getting dropped and, and Alan Jeans goes out and, and walks him and says hey what, what's going on here and he says, come with me, Robert. I need to have a word to you. And he says, come to the coach's room. He doesn't take him to the nearby coach's room and next to the trainer's room. He walks him right through the dark Ferry Oval to the far end of the building. And he just cops. He gives him the cop's stiff arm against the wall and says, don't you ever embarrass me like that, Robert. You know, you've embarrassed yourself. You've embarrassed your family. And he's got him in the hold like he would have at the St Kilda Road police station. He's a copper and Dipper's crying and blubbing all over the place and I'm so sorry, you know, and he's drunk. But all the players tell that story and and you know that given where Dipper ends up in the 89 grand final, it's just instructive to think that where he was, he was a, a lost, you know, slightly undisciplined, slightly partying player of the early 80s who had an inflated sense of his own ability and importance who gets turned into an ultimate team player, who can win a Brownlow Medal and make almost the most famous physical sacrifice in Grand Final history in 1989, and and so, and so, the my job as a writer is to take you beyond. Everyone knows Dipple was hurt and was brave in 1989, but do you all does everyone know where he was and who he was, and so he. I I hope that through the book he comes out as this. Quite spectacular character because there aren't many characters like Dipper. Picked up by Dippy Domenico,
1: down towards full forward, knocked away by Parsi. We've got a whistle, and it will be a free kick, I think, Clawthorne's way. Against Gary Hawking once again. I think it would have been a certain goal, whereas here it's a little bit doubtful. Dippy Domenico from 55 metres out, good looking kick. That's a goal.
2: You're obviously an, uh, an amazing and avid Hawthorne fan, but you write with such respect for this Geelong side and club at the time. Was that a considered effort or is that just a natural respect that you had for the club and for the team?
3: Uh, so I, I am a Hawthorne fan and I would always say I'm a Hawthorne fan, but rabid, I'm, I'm probably not. So, so one, thing about, one thing about getting churned through the system like I did, I got um, <laughs> spat out by... By the meatworks that is, mm. um, you know, professional sport, um, is that I went into a ten-year, fifteen-year indifference with footy, with senior footy, with with AFL, with supporting. So I, I I came back on board a bit with Cyril and Buddy. They were just so much fun, and so watching those two basically meant that I started going to the footy again. Because how could you have, it was just such a blessing to suddenly be Mm. watching Cyril and Buddy every week. Um, But, but in those years from delisting to 05, say I I was very lukewarm on footy. Um, And and so I really am able to respect other clubs. I, I I, but it's only through uh, the luck of the gods that you end up at the club you're at and, you know, I'm sure that I would think that the Geelong people were just as good as the Hawthorne people if I was at Geelong, you know. So so it's it's easy for me to, to be respectful and um, and also to enjoy the stories of footy wherever they arise. And so I, I haven't had a single person... Actually, no, I've had one person on Twitter say that it's Hawthorne had geography. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think i don't think that's a fair criticism. I think that there's probably parts of the book that are easier for me to write due to Hawthorne access and having more people I know at Hawthorne who were willing to contribute and for Hawthorne people being happier to talk about the day. but I am just as delighted at a good Geelong story as I am a good hawthorne story and and uh, and there's and, and hatred is not really on the you're not going to write a good book when you if you if you're hating and loving and 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 sort of wearing your heart on on your sleeve, uh, or at least not the sort of book I was trying to write. You could mm. write a great first-person fan book where there's hatred and love and passion and disdain, but I was trying to actually make you feel like you're in the story, and and that's mm. that 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 was it's closer to real journalism,
0: I would say, um, with this one. Yeah. And so footy's clearly changed an awful lot from 89 as we discussed. One of the things I didn't realise that this book brings to light and reflects on again is the blackface on the Hawthorne banner. So we spoke last week in this pod about Michael Long, the week before we spoke about Nicky Winmar. So was that a signal of or a symbol of how unaware football was of racism and as an issue in the 80s? Well, I think
3: it is so i i've had some really um angry responses to my chapter about the black face on the hawthorne banner from the cheer squad of the time who who say that there was no racism intended um that there were you know it was a multicultural cheer squad it was um there was an explanation as to why the mamma the mammy figure was used um, and that the, the, it was justified, and there was it just wasn't racist. Um, and and I've, my response has been well, if you just look at the the idea of having a, a mammy, a, a black-faced mammy, on the on the on the banner, it it um it just to the modern eye, it comes across as racist. Um, and and I don't think that the people in the cheer squad necessarily were racist because. Blackface was a um, was was a thing that was wasn't universally condemned. Um, in I, I know that I went to a players skit, skit night in 1992, and I won't go into details on this. But one of the players sang a Joe Cocker song, and because the backup singers in the Joe Cocker song had uh, were were African American in the clip, they just blackfaced, um, and there wasn't those people weren't racist. They were just doing what. Um, you know, that's what people did at that time. Um, and you think of comedy sketches, Hey, Hey, it's Saturday. Um, the late show had people blacking up, you know, there's, there was not a lot of thought that went into, and there was not a lot of condemnation at the time on, of people doing blackface. And so what I've tried to say to the cheer squad members who are angry with me for raising the fact that these banners now look racist, um, uh, that the, it's I'm not really judging them I'm saying that haven't we come a long way uh, would you really want Sean Berger in running through that banner next week well you wouldn't you just wouldn't um, and the reason why people put these up on Twitter the pictures of these banners and say hey might not get away with this one nowadays um is that you just wouldn't get away with these ones nowadays? But but I am acknowledging that it's a modern lens um, that, that changes the perspective. And the more important point of that chapter is not is not whether or not those race, those banners were racist. Um, it's about it's a point about the way that that aboriginality has um, has taken off since 1989 in 40 because that is one of two grand finals. There's 1995 had no Aboriginal players, but there wasn't an Aboriginal player on the ground in 95. And you just think of the richness of footy now and what Indigenous players have offered to the game. And and it's one of the most positive changes over the last um, 21, 31 years. And And I wanted to just make the point that this beautiful nostalgia, this book is a nostalgia book about how beautiful the game was, how great this game was, how much, um, it, it fills me with joy still to watch it. Um, but let's not think that everything was better. Um, some things are, are better for, for, for the attitude changes that have happened. And, um, and in particular, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd make the point that both Geelong and Hawthorne were slow on the uptake with Aboriginal footballers. Um, and I know people will give the example of Polly Farmer, and that is a notable, um, you know, he's, he's the, the great Aboriginal footballer of his era. But then post Polly, I think um, Gary Malarkey, 80s. Um, but did, well, I didn't know Gary at Malarkey was a, Indigenous until recently. Um, and Hawthorne, you know, we had to wait until Chance Bateman in the early 2000s to have prominent um, Indigenous faces on the field. So, you know, we weren't trailblazers, our two clubs, Geelong and Hawthorne. And so, you know, it's just worth reflecting on that. And, and I, I And I wrote a chapter on it
2: the other two kind of social movements that um, uh, are kind of tracked throughout this book in a nostalgic lens are both on-field violence and then off-field uh, the presence of drinking culture. Again, we yeah. look back at these, uh, look back at the, the book, like, there's a nostalgic element to that because it's obviously, there's lots of folklore around drinking stories and, you know, Just let's not that. train, let's go to the pub instead. And that's how we build mateship. Yeah. And the same with the violence aspect is this, whole folklore and even you mentioned like the brutality of this game the 89 grand final is what gives it some like cachet to it but do we do we miss that element of sports both on the off field or is that just kind of like a nice thing to just look back at it and go that was very strange and and very weird but par for the course of the time
3: well i think the camaraderie thing is a really interesting point to bring up i, I listened um I, I do run a speeches site called Speak Ola that collects great speeches and I loved um, Alistair Clarkson's best and fairest speech, Peter Crimmins' medal speech last year. And he just talked about how he lowered the intensity in the second half of last year when he he felt that he was out of control with the demands he'd been placing on the players. And then there was a series of milestones. Um, I think it was Isaac Smith's 200th and... Burgoyne becoming the most um, most games for an Indigenous player, and there was drinks after each of those milestones, like cracking open the slab after the game. And and he said, and he talked about how the performance lifted as a result of kind of enjoying the company of each other and having fun and being slightly less intense than was Clarko said was his default position. And, and I thought about that. And all the old players always talk like this, that it was good for them to have a release valves. And, 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 and in talking about this, I'm not sort of saying that the, the vast excesses of, um, of AFL and VFL party culture with bins drinking. Um, I'm talking about the kind of... They're not allowed anything while they're icing now in the 24 hours mm. after a game. You know, there's there's all these very strict sports science rules that apply to maximize performance, and and I wonder sometimes whether the the five percent they think they're grabbing on on icing, you know, walking through the ocean at six in the morning the next day, rather than going out and having fun, um, whether that five percent is lost in some other area like we're miserable, um, and so. The camaraderie question is really interesting. Um, I think it's overly policed now. Um, I think there's not enough credit given to people being people and making mistakes. There's sort of a fear of um, the excesses of where lots of young men drinking can end up in terms of brand and um, marketing and trouble and media and social media. And it's a, it's a loss. And, and it's why those players think they were lucky to play in that era. Um, on your second question which related to violence i think it's a much clearer point um the folklore of 89 is definitely enhanced by the violence the hit by yates the concussion of Platten, the smacking out of gary hawking's teeth by dipper um the the repeated clashes the airs almost knocking out ablett um there's no doubt that Violence is one of the main, um, one of the main cattle prods to why this game is what it is, um, and and even though I love it and and violence is compelling and great to watch, um, I think that the game is really better off for making, for being more safe for the actors because you know I spoke to John Platten and it's actually tragic. It's tragic that a guy gets knocked out two times a year for 20 years and has lifelong impact relating to memory and and mental function um, because the game wasn't well enough policed. And uh, so I'm glad those changes have happened, even, even though I think it means that the glory of 89 as a gladiatorial blood fest will never be repeated. Now
1: this is reminiscent of the... Final, at Brereton down. I mentioned how Yates came through the center, didn't have eyes for the ball, just went straight at Brereton and has put him down. A bad miss for Hawthorne because he's the one who can really get them going. Now watch this on replay. You see Yates, there he is, number, coming off the uh, wing there. He only had eyes for Brereton, then goes over and bumps him again, but obviously he's done his ribs. Down towards goal forward Brereton the test here. He's taken the mark. What a courageous mark in a wing. Well, that was a fitness test for Dermot Brereton. He went back and he took it. A well, bit this happening going, as you can see. This is going to be the order of the day. I thought it might have started earlier than now, but what a great mark you called it, Dennis. Dermot Brereton, as always, relishing being in the thick of things. Down in the first 15 seconds of the game.
0: A chance to kick Forthorn's second goal from 25 metres out. He's put it through. We've spoken a lot about Dermot already and when you mention a gladiatorial blood fest, he's the man that springs to mind. You could almost do an entire pod on Dermot. When we had Conrad Marshall on, he kind of spoke with us and said that the biography that he would most like to write in footy would be the Dermot biography. And so there are there are kind of undercurrents of a lot more going on with Dermot in the book than Dermot himself lets on. So do you think there'll be a point where footy gets the full Dermot Brereton story? Because it has and goes off into all manner of different directions.
2: it would be
3: interesting. I hope so. I think he's, he is. I agree with Conrad that he's maybe the most compelling figure of um of afl vfl footy um and that's just because i think his life has been interesting and and possibly difficult in some respects um and i i think that he has a charisma about him a a leadership to him um a, a combination a little bit like shane warne i guess of of being both um you know, having the, the sort of the egotistical strut, the self-belief, the, but also a warmth and a humanity to him. People almost uni- universally love Dermot. They, they like him. He makes you like him. Um, and even though you might, there might be people screaming into the podcast at this point saying, I I listen to him on the footy and I effing hate him. Um, and I hate the fact that he punched up my team for 10, 15, 20 years, whatever. Um, If you met Dermot, he would probably ask you something about yourself. Almost no one I've met who's as famous as Dermot is as interested in other people as Dermot. Mm. And and so, you know, I remember even as an under-19 player, we would sit in the spa and we'd lap up his stories about his weekend because he was Dermot and he was living a life that we couldn't imagine. Um, But at the same time, he'd also say, so Willow, you know, how's law going? you know, when I was studying law. And none of the other senior players would ever ask me that. It's just a, an offhand remark. Um, you know, when we were playing under-19s footy, um, only uh, two players ever attended an under-19s game. One was Russell Morris when the game was being played next to his house at Arden Street. And he came across the road. And Dermot came to five games. He'd just come yeah. out on the Sunday and watch us um, for no other reason than he just cared about kids that he'd met around the club and see how you're going mm. and, and so so that warmth and that um humanity and that empathy um really endears people to Dermot
2: mm. and
3: and he has that um in spades and yet there's also this story um this story which I, and the person I quoted from most in the book was a Mark Robinson article in the Herald Sun Dermot gave him quite a lengthy feature I think about five years ago, um, and it talked about um, the, his father, I guess, and talked about um, his father's addictions to cocaine and alcohol, um, his father's violence, and it wasn't a violence that was particularly directed at Dermot, although Dermot says, you know, it wasn't uncommon to get the strap sort of thing, but his dad was the sort of guy who could handle himself in a in a bar fight almost, Um, And yet his dad even had contradictions. He wasn't a brawling kind of bruiser. He was a guy who was also a fantastic musician, you know, which is, you know, just all these weird things stack up with Dermot. Um, You know, that that his dad had this artistic side to him. And, um, you know, Dermot's lost a couple of people in his family to suicide. And um, it's just uh, overall there's a tragedy uh, there beneath the surface, I think. Um, and it's um, and it's yeah it's intertwined with this life of football triumph. Um, so mm. I can see why Conrad sees it as a as as the white whale of biographies, I and mean, I'd probably say the same thing.
0: Yeah, I mean I just purely speaking as a writer as well, see it in a very similar vein because there's all of those kind of contradictions about Dermot that make him intriguing. The interesting thing to, that you kind of mentioned there is anyone that met Dermot has been asked a question by Dermot, and I met Dermot with like my two sisters while he was boundary riding at the MCG. It's like 2011, I think it was, and it was a richmond Carlton game. We just saw him went up and said hello. And then he started asking us questions about us. And it translated to, oh, we were born and raised in Frankston. And then he started telling us stories from his Frankston youth um, running. In, I think he was talking about running around an old manor and getting chased by a bloke with a shotgun because he was trespassing. <laughs> um, and, and I never, I'll never forget that because uh, you know, the moment really it was like two minutes and then all the other kids realised that Dermot was on the fence and everyone, every man and his dog kind of came over but that's kind of always always stuck with me just had no reason to be that warm in that moment
3: he's always warm he, mm. he's a beautiful person and he, um, he's one of my all time heroes I have to say and, and he was called kid at Hawthorne because there was a uh, there was this friendly um jovial uh slightly immature jokey um fun to him and uh, the smile on his face and 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 yeah i just um i i don't just rate him as you know one of the most inspiring footballers i've ever seen he's he's, a, he's one of the best people of you know cuz people like that who are so big don't have to dedicate themselves to to other people. Um and I've tried to take a little bit of that away. You know, I try not to say no much. Um and, you know, I think he's taught me that. He came to the launch of this book. He and Mark Yates both um were at the launch (laughs) and they did their shtick. And, you know, Mark Yates said, Yeah, I couldn't get you an eighty nine, but I've come here and I'm I've infected myself with COVID nineteen and I plan to take you all out tonight. You know, it was a it was just a really fun and funny um, light-hearted way to, to kick the book off, and and yeah, that, and that's very Dermot that he would that he would come along to help out an under nineteen player from 1989 who'd written a book, and and yes, this book kind of um, is part of the mythology and part of the eulogising and part of the um, the the hugeness that is Dermot. Um, I think is reinforced by this book, but at the same time he doesn't have to do it and. Uh, and lots of people said no, um, and he said yes.
2: And so there's another great spotting mythology being told in a different format with The uh, Last Dance and the Michael Jordan story of the Bulls. Yeah. Do you think that, was there, well, was there any chance that this would be a documentary given that you have a documentary background instead of uh, a book? And then what are, the, what are the decisions you made when you're faced with challenges of trying to get a story that is a retelling of something that happened over 25 years ago?
3: So I was never going to do a documentary on film because I didn't have the time to do that. Um, I had to get this book out quite quickly for what was going to be the 30th anniversary. It actually got put back for reasons relating to Hardy Grant acquiring the publisher. Um, It came out in in this year instead of last year, but I was ready for it to come out in August of last year. Um, And, the, the other reason I wouldn't have done a documentary is that Pete Dixon had already done a documentary. And so the final story documentary that he did was fantastic. I thought great job. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was the Peter Dixon style. I would have done something slightly different, but at the same time, I, I didn't think there would be anyone who would be a taker for a, a, the next 89 documentary. Um, and so the book hadn't been done. And, and that was a, a an opportunity for me to do the book um, in terms of the challenges of, of telling stories from a long time ago, people just can't remember. <laughs> they just, they just, they just, <laughs> I, I spoke to Jason Dunstall. And I, I honestly think Jason Dunstall really didn't want to speak to me, but um, I saw him at the, the Sofitel at the, at the 30 year reunion last year. And I said, oh, I just really want to talk to you. Will you interview me? And he said, I just can't remember anything. It's no point talking to me. I said, oh, there'll be something you remember. And he said, I just can't remember. I really just don't know what happened. Pay the price. Yeah, Gigi yelled. I do sort of remember that. That's about all I can remember from the day. And and so, and you do get um, conflicting accounts. You have to try to pick together something that's true. And, and, And you also get stories that have been told over and over and over again. And Dermot, someone like Dermot, who's a, um, a real raconteur he, he is used to telling a story a certain way and, and it might not actually be true. And I, I found that out I found that out Um, not, this, this is not blatant life in Dermot, it's just a sort of a offhand line that's kind of cool. He, he sort of, he says yeah I start passing blood at half time, I'm, I'm pissing into the bath at the MCC and in the <laughs> change rooms and it's just red and so I grab the doctor um, Terry Gay I grab him and say oh, I'm pissing blood Terry what should I do and he resumes pissing and sure enough he's pissing blood and Terry Gay looks at it and, and Dermot tells it as big paws looks at him and says um, drink plenty of water and don't tell anybody and that's the line that's how Dermot tells that story and it's, it's a great story it's got rhythm It's, it's it sort of creates the legend that's of the era. And then Dermot says, I thank Terry for that because he understood footy. Terry Gay played footy for Hawthorne in the 60s. Now he was a doctor. He knew what grand finals meant. And I wrote that up as a story for the book. And Jeff Slattery said to me, you really have to speak to Terry Gay because <laughs> he's a doctor who's sending a guy who's got internal bleeding back out onto the ground. That doesn't. He might want to ha- answer that question. And so I rang up Terry Gay and said, Dermot says that you saw the blood and yeah, and said drink plenty of water and don't tell anyone. And Terry said, that's not what I said. It's not what I said. This is what I said. I had been trying to wrestle Dermot into having some sort of medical um, examination for two quarters. He told us to fuck off every time we tried to come anywhere near him. He then goes, this is right at the end of halftime. We've already had pay the price speech. Dermot goes to the toilet starts urinating, realises he's pissing blood, calls me in and I say to him, Dermot, we've really got to examine you here. At this point, the players are pretty much jogging past to go down the race to re-enter the arena and Dermot just says, fuck off, um, I'm, it's time to go back out. So he runs off on Terry Gay, who's saying you need to be examined. And Terry Gay, almost like a um, frantic, fretting grandmother yells, um, Derma, don't forget to drink lots of water. And (laughs) doesn't say don't tell anybody. He just yells to a hopelessly um out of control patient who is not receiving any examinations. And he and then I said Terry said to me, Look, I could have kicked up a fuss. I could have yelled, get him off. He needs to get off. I could have done that. And maybe that would have been the best medicine. But my my inclinations were that he wasn't. He was able to run around. He was able to jump. He was able to breathe. And if, if he really was in bad trouble with the kidneys, um, he wouldn't be able to do those things. And so I backed my judgment, even though I don't think it was the best medicine in the moment. That's how Terry Gay put it. So you sort of realise that the grooves that these players hit with telling these stories for thirty years. Um, that there are exaggerations and there's bending of the truth in order to kind of fit the, the mythology. Gruns
1: goes for goal. Brownless at the back, Ablett. This could be the record number of goals kicked in a grand final at the moment held by Dermot Brereton. Gary Ablett has kicked eight. a chance to kick his ninth that mistake coming from his brother-in-law, Michael Tuck on the outer flank. The back flank for Hawthorne. Here goes Ablett for goal number nine. And he's threaded it.
0: So in in 89 and in the book, there is a a sense that the the central or key players on each team have a bigger impact on the outcome than perhaps your glut of key players would have today. Do you think that's right? Or do you think that there's still an element of if your best six outperform their best six you'll win.
3: That's a tricky one to answer as well, isn't it? I mean, there's, mm. there's, there's theories and different examples pop up on different days. But, you know, I, I, I don't think you can win the flag without a, a sparkling top six. You know, so even today, I always think, you know, where's your danger field? Um, you know, where's your Luke Shuey? Where's your Josh Kennedy? You know, you've got to have these guys that are, a, a two hundred and fifty gamers you 've got to have a dozen of them that or or ten of them that are two hundred to three hundred game players <clears throat> to be <coughs> to be good enough to win a flag and then you 've got to hope that the guys that are hanging in there or just bobbing up um, play well enough um, so I know coaches say that bottom sixes win your flags no i th- I think the top six is more important definitely i mean. North did win two flags because of Kerry, um, Hawthorne's, yeah, Hawthorne's 10, um, Hawthorne's 10 best in, in those late eighties years were superb as were their six, seven, eight best in the, in the three P, you know, so the, the talent has to be, um, superb at the top. And, and I always think that if you haven't got a, if you haven't got a top 10 in the AFL sort of player leading them all, um, you're going to struggle to win a
2: flag. And so that's what makes a, a good flag-winning team. But do you, have any, do you have like a concrete idea of what makes a good grand funnel? So i have asked a couple of guys this, and it gets as philosophical as when we asked Martin Flanagan, who went on this uh, long spiel about its two equal rival forces colliding in like a ball of like kinetic energy. Is that well, he, the sense he, it is for you? Or is it more something you've been, all been, all been, all been, all been all more
3: content. Content. <laughs> i send a book to I sent a book to Martin Flanagan's son-in-law this week. I've been selling the books, home industries in the COVID era, I've been selling some signed books and Martin Flanagan's bought one for his son-in-law. But I love Martin Flanagan and he has um, a, an amazing ability to find poetry and sport. And um, and I think the thing that makes a great grand final is um, is something that lives up to the the Coliseum like event you know so we do need the quality. needs to be a sense that two teams are smashing together Um, we need stars and personalities so I think of the Bulldogs flag in 2016 it is partly made by the absence of Bob Murphy on one side uh, the presence of the bond uh, the presence of um, of Buddy you know Buddy just he lights up an arena when he's in it. In the same way as Ablett did, um, Ablett Senior and Ablett Jr., you know, and the the the, the glory of eighty nine, the reason there's many reasons to eighty nine is unrepeatable, but but really the Ablett story is the freakish thing, you know, so so you can have great contests where two teams push against each other and there's a close result and there's lots of fine football. But to have a guy do six or seven impossible things over the day you know that's where the thing gets elevated into this sort of mysterious brilliant um ethereal glow uh, and, and i think 89 had that more than any other game that's been played in the grand final some players like maybe cyril sometimes gives you that feeling um of this is just magical and weird and how did he do that um but but Abbott did it the most um and, and so. You know, that's why it's my favorite.
1: Fantastic finish. The dying seconds. Geelong need a goal to tie. And there's going to be a ball up. Valuable time is just ticking away. We're down to 15 seconds now as play restarts. Geelong must get it immediately. One down by Flanagan, taken by Buse, upended by Dippio Domenico. They lock it up again. It looks like it's all over. The dream of back to back pennants. There's all but there as far as the Hawks are concerned. There's the siren. Hawthorne have won it by six points, a heart stopper. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just seen that classic.
0: So you've obviously, you've mentioned already that you're selling these out of your house. So where can people find you? What's the easiest way to get you an email to get a get a copy of the book?
3: yeah so i'll stay that on the pipe there are books everywhere so you should be able to get a big w and booktopia and oh, lots of places so it's hopefully getting distributed far and wide but with um covid-19 i did think i'll oh, i'll do a little bit of the home industries and i'll sell my books of all persuasions including my bob murphy a boy called bob i've got signed signed copies of that i've got um the selwood boys box set and audio books i've got those i've got um 89, the great grand final, and I've just been posting them out. So if people send me their address I'll, um, and I'll send my bank account and we do the exchange and it's been going pretty well and I, I get a little bit more than if it's sold in the bookshops and, and it's, a, it's a nice way to be able to sign things for footy fans as well and, and for people who want to give the book as a gift.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us for all of that, Tony. It's, it's been a marathon and it's been an absolute joy as well.
3: Thanks a lot, boys, and well done on the podcast. It's great to have some footy in this uh, footy-less time, so thank you.